Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Purat, your host, and I'm super glad to be doing this work with you today. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Meet Mindful. Meet Mindful is revolutionizing the way we meet and connect with others in daily life by inspiring people to make meaningful connections every day, both on and offline. Maybe you're looking for a long-term love with a partner who shares your core values. Perhaps you just want to meet new like-minded friends to grab coffee with on Saturday afternoon. The bottom line is you're looking for people to connect with, people who get you. This is actually a company that is founded and run by a friend of mine, Amy Baglin, and I've been super impressed with what she's done to create a community of conscious, like-minded people who basically want to live in a conscious way and are here to make the world a better place. So it's a great community and I highly recommend it. You have a free trial when you visit meetmindful.com forward slash emerging women. Today my guest is Liana Silver, teacher, coach, speaker, and author of Feminine Genius, The Provocative Path to Waking Up and Turning on the Wisdom of Being a Woman. Yes! Liana Silver mentors women to unlock their feminine genius using intuition before reasoning, feeling before thinking, receiving before giving, sensuality before willpower, hell yes, pleasure before restriction, and collaboration before competition. In today's podcast, we unpack the term feminine genius through the combined lenses of spirituality and science, specifically quantum physics. We talk about how to trust in the death part of the death and rebirth cycle and how to express your authentic self without dying from your emotions. We'll also hear why Liana says women are like light bulbs. Can you guess why? I am thrilled that Liana will be joining us at Emerging Women Live 2017 in Denver this year. I hope that you will be there to meet her in person. And if you can't, you can see her and other speakers on the free live stream that you can sign up for at emergingwomen.com. And now I present to you Feminine Genius with Liana Silver. Hi there. Welcome, Liana. How are you? So good. So happy to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, yeah. I've been waiting a while. This is <laughs> this is like our conversation, for sure. Right? Yes. Yeah. In your book, Feminine Genius, you actually have a quote towards the, the beginning of the book, which really intrigued me. And it said, This beloved is a most auspicious time to be a woman. Why do you say that? Well, it's easy to look around and say it sucks to be a woman. There's a lot of... (laughs) Well, I know you just... The previous pages, you just sort of like are giving out all these stats and it's, you know, um, it's not really the the picture. But I want to hear more about, given all the crap out there, (laughs) what's the opportunity? Here's what I see. I see that 51% of the population, I'm making a grand generalization, 51% of the the population, women and girls, are consumed by self-doubt and navel-gazing and uh, an obsession with physical appearance and fitting in. And there is this wasted resource of radiance and of, of power. And I just think if we had 51% more of that kind of power, Mm. what would shift inside each of those women and girls, in their families, in their communities, in the world at large? We are on the brink of extincting our species. And to me, the root of the suffering that we're experiencing is because women are so dimmed down and that the possibility for collective rising and really, really saving ourselves 
lies in the hands and the bodies and the, and the souls of women. Hmm. And you distinctly call this feminine genius. And I'd love to unpack that so we have a baseline. What is feminine genius? And I'm particularly interested in this, the term genius. And you have a, a nice take on that that I'd like you to unpack as well. So let me start with feminine. Uh, I, let me say this in two ways. So, so I like to borrow from the Vedic tradition, kind of that influenced Hinduism. Mm. This is this idea is in so many creation myths. Essentially, it says there was oneness, there was consciousness itself, and consciousness itself wanted to experience itself. Mm-hmm. When you're one, you can't really check yourself out and play and understand and learn and know. So it divided itself into many aspects, but a feminine aspect and a masculine aspect. Mm-hmm. So I use it in that term. It's like an energy. It's a quality of energy. So it's not... Uh, both feminine and masculine energies or qualities are present in every human, regardless of your gender or your however you self-identify. However, we are a world that is fueled by masculine aspects. We bow down, we prostrate ourselves to the thinking, the linear, goal-oriented, will-powered competitive hierarchical qualities that we all have Mm -hmm. and we shove down and hide away and denigrate what I call our feminine qualities, which are our intuitive, our sensual, cyclical, feeling, connective, collaborative qualities. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by feminine. Mm -hmm. Now, the genius part, the best way to describe that is, um, so if you think of the genius, a, a genius, you probably think of Einstein mm-hmm. and we, right? It's an easy association to make. And uh, yeah, so Einstein, we think of him as he is a genius because of his intellect, because he had intellectual intelligence. And actually, if you read a little bit about how he worked, it's true. He was intellectually really advanced, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. the reason he could come up with these really, like his theories really have shaped modern science as a springboard for quantum science. And he did that through intuition. He did that through understanding intuitive intelligence. And I would say this is the genius part, that when we can tap into a kind of intuitive intelligence, intelligence, it's almost, I call it the collective soul. That is your soul, that is our soul. There is an intelligence there is a energy of life force itself that is available to us. That is an awesome way to be guided into your next steps mm-hmm. or make really important choices in your life. So feminine genius to me is this particular kind of intelligent life force energy, very intuitive and sacred in nature that really runs through our veins. It's, a, it's kind of otherworldly, but it really helps us in this world. It's the it's light, you know, it's it's the light of consciousness, but it's also the woman who is lit by this force. I love how in explaining the masculine and the feminine, you, you know, first you talk about how the masculine is, you know, runs through science and runs through religion. And and then you take us to, in other words, the traditional Science, the traditional religion is very masculine, top down, black, white, linear thinking, and not a, a lot of room for this, what you're calling, a, you know, the feminine genius or a nuanced life force outside of, you know, what's in the book. And yet you move us towards quantum theory and making the statement of the feminine appearing in that which ironically binds the two, science and religion. Mm. Flush that out a little bit because it's fascinating. So I was raised as a, I like to say, a spiritual mixed breed, a spiritual mutt. <laughs> you know, my, my parents are both Jewish by ancestry, and we had some of that in my upbringing. For a while, there was Christian science, and then we went through a phase of 
Buddhism and New Ageism and, you know, Carolyn Mace was uh, <laughs> right there on the bookshelf. And um, my dad was a longtime Buddhist, Vipassana Buddhism, Buddhism. And so I'm very greatly influenced by not only Buddhism, but also a kind of a non-dogmatic approach to everything. You just, you know, you take bits from everything and sew yourself a garment that fits for you. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, it's a heathen approach, but but it's my approach. <laughs> and so I've just looked at the world as the Buddha looks at the world, uh, which is you don't need an intermediary. You can sit down, observe your own inner workings, and absolutely make contact with the divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is everyday. This is ordinary. This is accessible. And you might need to slow yourself down and pay attention a little bit, but... I'm speaking about the the practice of Buddhism, less about the religion of Buddhism. Great distinction. Yeah. Um, so when I, I'm I'm a, my very influenced by my dad, who was a uh, he was in a think tank at MIT and helped create the first computer touchscreen. So he's a really wild computer scientist and scientist. And so the thing that Buddhism asked the Buddha discovered is kind of this meeting of spirituality and science, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. that science essentially can say there nothing exists really, <laughs> but it, it, it like there is oneness, and then out of oneness, undifferentiated consciousness or potential energy comes matter and comes form and people and trees, etc. That it doesn't, of course, it does exist. You can reach down and touch your body and you know confirm that it that it does, but it also does not. And so whatever Buddha discovered thousands and thousands of years ago, science is catching up and confirming. And that body of science, which is called quantum theory or quantum mechanics, um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert. I think even quantum theorists don't claim to be experts. The ones that are, it's pretty complicated. But to me, it's, it's super simple. God is everywhere undifferentiated consciousness is everywhere and out of it you arise and you can tap into that force that you are that you are that force you tap into it through your your intuition it speaks to you in your body through what you feel through what you think through what you sense through what you intuitively know did i I do that justice yeah i mean i want to i want to poke a little bit more at this yeah because the spontaneous arising I mean, just being spontaneous is the feminine. I mean, I, I think of uh, the masculine feminine in terms of yin and yang. And um, yeah. because I feel like when I'm talking to people that there's a lot of controversy around masculine and feminine. And people are just like, why why even spend the time on it? You know, and so this this whole world is based on the interplay of those two polarities, just down to a very molecular level. So, you know, to be interested in that at an atomic scientific level and not to be interested in that in terms of like, you know, psychology and sociology and organizational development and personality and um, media and all of that just seems, you know, incongruent. So I love that you're really kind of making a stat, you know, you're actually like separating the two and just, you know, and honoring the divine masculine and but we're focusing on divine feminine. But the part about the quantum is interesting because this idea of spontaneously arising does feel very feminine. And, um, but I've never actually heard the application of the feminine living inside the whole, the the world of quantum physics. And it's interesting and I love it. You know, there's another piece that really led me to this, which is Sometimes we say, if you're in your head, you're in your masculine. Mm -hmm. And if you're in your body, you're in your feminine. And it's not like you can just be in your head or just be in your body. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit jargony. But so I started to get really interested in the interplay of thought and of feeling, which is actually what the, what Buddhist teaching asks you to take a look at is, is the, you know, where does this arise from? And what's the intersection? Does the thought influence the feeling? Does the feeling influence the thought? And so quantum science posits this, that our brains are actually, they don't hold, they don't record information. 
we used to think of them as we used to think of our brains as recording devices like, um, you know, like a VCR used mm-hmm. to be. Um, if I don't date myself, like making a voice memo on your iPhone, mm-hmm. right? It's recorded. It's held in your, your iPhone. But actually, our brains work more like a receiver, mm-hmm. like a, a telephone or a television receiver, and more like where our data is shared in the cloud, right? Mm-hmm. Which then opens up this whole idea that, wow, my thought is our thought. Mm-hmm. I, my thought is not stored in my mind, my thought is collective thought. There is mind. And, you know, there, so it just kind of blows my mind pretty wide open. And I just, I do feel like this, uh, this idea um, is called, sometimes it's called quantum field theory. And the idea of a field is that we can, we can totally get what a field is. If you have a cell phone, the field of the cell phone extends beyond the cell phone. Um, or or beyond the cell phone tower, right? Mm-hmm. The field of the radio signal extends beyond that little actual antenna. Mm-hmm. And it's like this with our thoughts and our feelings. Like where there are fields of information um, that are always affecting each other and interplaying. And this to me is science where science meets spirituality. You know, mm-hmm. are, are we, are how do, are my thoughts your thoughts? Are we sharing thoughts? Uh, is is there a collective soul? Which is kind of what um, what Carl Jung, his body of work. I mean, really beautiful Jungian dream analysis, or this idea of uh, archetypal mm. energies that we tap into. That, uh, for example, an archetype of the Great Mother, and we we might you and I might have a dream. At the same time, we might dream about this particular kind of energy. And the idea is that these archetypes exist, and they exist in kind of like the, sh- the shared field. They, co- they exist in the collective soul. We can each dip into them. Mm. And this, to me, feels very feminine genius. Mm. Yes, I love that. Now, one of the things that you did, again, more early in the book, but I thought it was helpful is locating a time in our lives where we start to identify these beliefs where we start to record or the antenna goes out and we've picked up a signal along the way as a young girl and we ride that signal and let it dig a deep trench in our brain and that's usually the point in our lives where we become an overgiver or a perfectionist or do it all yourself. No one's going to do it for you or sexual energy is wrong. Just to name several examples of some of these collective thoughts um, and individual thoughts that are running through a lot of women's brains that don't really get processed sometimes until we're in our thirties and our forties. And I love that you actually locate an example around that. Tell us more about the importance of that and what do you do with the memory once you spend time figuring out, like, you know, where the trigger came from? Sure. Yeah, this comes from a lot of the individual work that I do with it, which is kind of understanding where the the or unoriginal memory or imprint happened. And it's usually pretty early Um where we, you develop certain beliefs about yourself, specifically around sexuality, around your body, around your womanhood, around your girlhood, around what you want, what you need, if it's okay to need, uh, you know, who it's okay to be, how big it's okay to be. So I think that, I mean, there's obviously some things that are possible one-on-one in a session mm-hmm. that that are, are unique and precious to that, that, you know, that format. However, I don't think that most of us know that those are rewritable, that we, um, we're going to learn something. There's these little windows that open up in our brain when we're between just born to about five years old, where we learn about being loved, our right to be here, our right to need, like organismic rights. Like just because you got born, you have this right, mm. the right to be loved and to love and we're going to learn something. We're going to learn something empowering or disempowering. And so it's just so wonderful to know 
you made the best decision you could under the circumstances you were in, and it is rewritable. It's not the truth. It was really helpful at the time. Often we will choose um, a belief. Not like we're like sitting around choosing, right? But some part of our of our being chooses a belief. I I shouldn't need anything. I should only give, for example, because for perhaps your mom was in great pain and you didn't want to um, have a lot of needs, you know, and pull on her any more than than was necessary. And you figured if you could be good, you'd get the good stuff from her. You'd get more love. This is pretty common, right? Mm-hmm. You chose something out of love and devotion. It's like a awesome, elegant solution that ends up um, cramping your light and your radiance later. Mm. So first, I, I think we need to know, wow, I, this is not the truth. It can be rewritten. And what was useful then is not necessarily useful now and is really not actually the, the truth of who I am or who I came to be, who I came here to be. Now, you yourself have had a relationship with perfectionism and and some of the other pitfalls that are common among women. I mean, there's, you know, I, I see like maybe 20 circulating over and over again as I myself <laughs> yeah. am out there talking to tons of different women leaders. Tell us a little bit more about that thread and how you've used feminine genius to outcreate some of the things that the patterning and such. You know, I feel like I must have downloaded this, mainlined it from dominant culture. I had a a pretty great upbringing. I was raised on a commune in northern New Mexico, you know, very free thinking, but very conscious, safe parents. It was a pretty positive environment. Hmm. Uh, The first time I got um, a report card, well, the first thing I remember is my dad saying, you know, the most important thing in life is to follow your bliss. And if that means doing something like painting mile markers purple, then you should go paint mile marker signs purple. Mm. And um, and then, so I don't know, I just, I just got it from somewhere. I remember showing them my first report card that was straight A's and they were kind of nonplussed. And I remember them saying, that's nice. And kind of looking at me and saying, you know, we love you unconditionally. It doesn't really matter what's on this report card. And I remember the internal feeling of, no, no, you can't. I don't deserve that. I'm not perfect yet. But I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you on that unconditional love. Um, so regardless of where I got it, I just, I definitely have spent a lifetime afflicted with the perfectionism bug. And um, I do think there's a lot in perfectionism. I think perfectionism mostly is a kind of uh, wanting to be in a static place that's not moving, that nothing ever moves. You get there and you never leave where you are beyond reproach. There's a perfect veneer where no one can see inside the places you feel are are flawed. There is some elements of perfectionism that, you know, for those of us who just love excellence, we love to improve upon something. We, we love something that is just so. And those, t- to me, feel like more empowering aspects of perfectionism. But that's not usually what, what kills you, you know. So I don't know where I got it, but I spent a lifetime doing that. And perfectionism got me an eating disorder of anorexia for a, a number of years. I was really underweight. I didn't uh, get my menstrual cycle for a couple of years. Uh, you know, I uh, lived on coffee and bagels when I lived in New York and was dancing for 10 years. And um, underneath perfectionism is this idea that I am definitely not okay as I am. But when I improve that or fix that, then I will be worthy of love. Mm-hmm. Then I will be worthy of praise or then I'll be worthy of you know, of of money or et cetera. So I, uh, you know, I heard at one point (laughs) that perfectionism is a misguided attempt to connect with the divine. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's, perfectionism is so many things and it's definitely that. So, So here's this incredible shift in perspective that I received. And this I heard Adi Ashanti, amazing spiritual teacher, say really well. Essentially that we all have a core wound of unworthiness. We feel like we were we're unworthy. 
like me with my report card. Like, don't love me yet. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I need to get straight A pluses. <laughs> um, and especially in the in the West, with a lot of uh, Puritan work ethic or certain like influences of Western religion, we feel as though that unworthiness is irreparable. It mm-hmm. it is hardwired in. It is original sin. There's nothing you can do. You can make it a little better if you follow the rules and you and you are perfect. Mm-hmm. And maybe you get reunited with the divine in the afterlife. But but here's the thing. In Eastern traditions, like Buddhism, like Hinduism, etc., the idea is, okay, you may feel, you may have this core wound of unworthiness, but it's a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. You just haven't been taught or you haven't you have forgotten that you are one with the divine. Mm-hmm. Where, where would you go? How would you fall from everything is God, right? Everything, there's no way you could fall or no way you could separate yourself from the divine. You are the divine. Your soul is having a human experience through you. Mm-hmm. And this is such a kind way to look at it that it's you just forgot and you can remember. And there's really something in that that I've been chewing on for a long time of uh, if I'm already home, if I'm already connected to the divine, like it, I don't, I don't need this veneer of perfectionism to feel that. Mm-hmm. Well, hallelujah, hallelujah. Gosh, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love, I love that take on it. And you know, the other thing is just, it's a strive for harmony in a way because we. We have a longing to feel inner peace and to feel one, and that feeling of one, just, you know, our image of that, and from what I hear, it's total peace. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you're pointing out the positive side to that, um, because there needs to be a positive side to perfectionism. It creates so much damage out there. So much. Yeah, and, you know, taking it in, and again, in your feminine genius work, you're talking about not ostracizing those parts of ourselves that are distasteful, especially when we first discover them, but to bring them in and, and you know, welcome them into the whole of who we are is the way, rather than just let's chop it off and reconstruct it and get rid of it and out, you know, create it and you know, I love that belonging piece to the feminine genius. Mm. Rupture is not mm. where your story ends. It is where it begins, says Regina Thomashauser, a.k.a. Mama Gina. Mm. Our friend. Mm. Yes, our friend. Mm. God, I love her so much. Yeah, um, yeah, she's, she's extraordinary. She's fabulous. And talk about radiance. Talk about feminine yeah. genius. Um, yeah. And you, you then take us on the hero's journey, a.k.a. the feminine genius version of that, the heroine's journey, and how it's so important to really embrace the dark night of the soul, so you say, or you know, some of those moments when we feel totally ruptured, broken. You know, I call it like sucking my thumb in the dark on the couch of my office, like rocking back and forth going, how am I going to get through this? (laughs) It was only me. Yeah. Um, And this is a big chunk of the book. So tell us how to get through this and why we need to get through it and how to handle this. Because I know, and especially in your feminine genius work, this cycle of death and rebirth just ain't going away. And we're always, you know, the magnitude of the darkness may change, but getting savvy on how to do that in a feminine way, I think is key to, you know, emotional and psychological and spiritual survival on this planet. So do tell, Miss Liana. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, So I don't think there's anything more feminine in quality or in nature than a cycle or than a spiral, right? Masculine, very... uh, very linear, like you think of the essence of masculine as a tr- locomotive, a train, like mm-hmm. just hauled ass in one direction, right? Very powerful. And uh, the feminine is so cyclical. And if we look in nature, right, there's mm-hmm. the four seasons of nature. Um, we And I call this the rebirth, death and rebirth cycle. Uh, you know, obviously this is not, this didn't originate with me. Mm-hmm. Um 
So, you know, just to harken back one conversation, part of the reasons we have perfectionism is because we don't want to not be on all the time. We don't want to admit we have depression or dark feelings or intense emotions or negative emotions or times when we feel like sitting in our office in the dark and sucking our thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the most amazing things is to realize. So here's, here's, I think probably the best thing that saved my life. And I think has really saved a bunch of other lives. So we've all gone through times of that I call dark or winter times, or the death part of the death rebirth cycle, even if it's not a literal death, but they feel like a stripping away or a cold, um, you know, stagnant time. We've all gone through them, right? And that springtime, that rebirth always comes. We forget that. Mm-hmm. That's the design of the dark. So in that, you know, we've all gone through them. I've gone through them many times. And I just happened to go through one that was so long, and was so intense that really questioned everything for me that um, had me go to a certain depth, a certain depth of understanding about this time that in retrospect is absolutely precious. And I'm very grateful. And this perspective that that dark night of the soul or that winter time of our soul is a lesson and we're going to be better for it is something you only can say after the fact. <laughs> you just don't have access to that in the time. Mm-hmm. And so during this period of, of my life, I, for some reason, right. And I'm just having things that I think are the ugliest, least acceptable parts of myself come out. And I'm just seeing blame and physical illness and confusion and pain. And right. I just seeing parts of myself that, I think are the ones I wish I had a scalpel for to just cut out. And for some reason I thought, what if this wasn't a mistake? Mm -hmm. What if this wasn't a punishment for something I've done wrong or haven't done right enough or haven't got perfect? What if this was wise? What if this dark time was wise? What if this dark emotion that I was feeling at this very moment is wise. If there's wisdom here rather than like some punitive uh, action for, for my shortcomings, what would that be? And that changed everything. And then I had to look at this of, you know, nature goes through death and rebirth all the time and we don't freak out. We just assume spring's going to come again. We put on our, our winter coats and, you know, or our raincoats if you live in a climate that doesn't snow. It just gets a little colder or wetter. Mm-hmm. And we sort of trust in that cycle. So it is radical and it is hard to trust in the cycle of a time of your life where everything that you know and everything that's worked and everything that's felt good gets stripped away. Mm-hmm. So I think the perspective, there's two perspectives that really helped me here. And well, the first one I've said is that this is wise the great feminine in the earth or the great feminine in the skies knows what she's doing mm-hmm. with you, right? With you in your dark time. I think the other perspective that really helped is knowing that in those painful dark times, it's never going to feel good. It is painful. And we need really simple skills to know how to be with pain. I think this is probably the root of human suffering, that we don't know how to be with pain. We we know how to numb it or pretend it isn't there. I think we know how to get it out of us, you know, like we hit someone or yell at someone mm-hmm. or, right? We don't know how to be with it. We don't know how to be with it. And we don't know how to dialogue with the wisdom of this time. Mm-hmm. And so this has been incredibly useful, incredibly useful. Um, and I think that it is, the last perspective I think that is important to know is that we go down into the unknown or the unlit or these times of the dark because a part of us is dying. Mm-hmm. And the part that emerges into that rebirth is not the part that went down. Like there is a kind of a death. There is a stripping away. There is a peeling of the onion leaves of your soul or of your your personality. And when we have that perspective, like there is a there is a forging or a nakedness 
or a, or a stripping away that's happening and an aspect of your clarity or your authority or a, a part of you you didn't know existed before that had that resiliency. That's what's being born. Where else do things get born but in the fertile void of the dark? And so I think that this is this is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> this is a feminine genius skill that is that, will, that takes the metal. But I think that perspective or those perspectives make sense out of it and give us some fortitude to let it work us mm-hmm. and let it be done with us when it's done with us. Mm. I mean, it takes the ultimate feminine quality of surrender and yielding. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm wondering like you have a little section that says if this is you. Now I'm guessing that there's some people listening right now that are like I'm in that, right? Mm. The surrender and just paying attention, the only thing we can do. The best well here's here's the here's kind of like the general thesis and then something really practical. Mm-hmm. So here you're really in it. Uh, first, I think it's really freaking helpful to know that other people are in it or have been in it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about that, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, just, we don't like to bond around that. Mm-hmm. So it's really helpful. I think that it's important to know you should not be spiritualizing or looking for the lesson at this point. It's too nascent. It's it's working you. Interesting. And that's I want to hang on that for a second because that is interesting. Because yeah. that's what we I do. Mean, I know that's what I do. I'm just like I need to figure it out, and then I will move through it like a ninja. And Chantal, you know, gosh, who, who however your process works, that's great. I just will speak to the tendency that a lot of us have mm. to it's so fr- freaking uncomfortable and we want to and we live in a culture that you know wants to point out the silver lining in the dark time or wants to remind us we're we're uh you know there there's going to be a great lesson in this you're going to look back and be proud mm-hmm. and uh those are true mm-hmm. but but they just don't help in this time. And there is that really great term, spiritual bypassing, which is you can kind of bypass the washing machine rigor of the dark time and kind of jam yourself out of there. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, 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 um, it's a little bit like when you don't allow a fever, when you, when you use medicine to break a fever and actually that virus can go into your tissues and lay dormant there. Like you kind of need your fever to, it, it's literally burning out the virus out of your system. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we circumvent that process, we can have some issues later. I think that we, when we buy, spiritually bypass and, uh, and don't allow this process to complete, it comes back later in a different form or just, you know, it prolongs it. So, yeah, I think, um, so I think we, we want to, if you, I, I mean, I think there'll be a little insights or little breaks through the clouds where you get a sense of what in the world this lesson is about or what growth is happening. Mm-hmm. But that's not the, the, your task when things are this hard is to breathe literally to just be in this moment and breathe and have one more breath and one more breath mm-hmm. and just to put one foot in front of the other. And if you can ask for help mm-hmm. um, or ask for someone to listen and don't give you advice, <laughs> Um, yeah, I will say yeah. that specifically, this is my version of what feels to me as like a very, so I, I don't know, I just made this up. And then later I've been, you know, I'm always a devoted uh, listener of Pina Chodron. And so I've recently been studying the three limbs of Buddhism. And I was like, oh, this is a Vajrayana Buddhist practice. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. This is always how it happens. I make shit up and then find out that it's part of a lineage later. So, <laughs> so essentially, this is useful. This is a way to um, not run from pain, mm-hmm. not numb, not not uh, numb to it, or hide it away, but also not just overexpress it. Mm-hmm. So essentially, 
there's this really interesting interesting thing that happens if you've ever driven on black ice, which is this condition where the roads freeze, but they freeze so you can't even see the ice, mm-hmm. and it's really dangerous. And so you're driving along, and all of a sudden your car goes into a spin, and you're heading into oncoming traffic. And our natural inclination is to slam on the brakes and steer away from the oncoming car, which would make all the sense in the world. And people who live where black ice is common know you do the opposite. Mm -hmm. You slowly put on the brake and you actually steer in the direction that you're spinning, which feels like you're steering into oncoming traffic. And that's what allows you to get control of the car again. Mm -hmm. And this is a practice like that, where an emotion comes up, a a painful feeling comes up, Mm -hmm. and it comes up as a sensation in our bodies, and it comes up as a story, the meaning of what we're making. And we want, to, we want to jam on the brakes. We want to spiritually bypass our way out of there. And we want to steer in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And so it's super simple. We, I'm not saying it's easy, but it is super simple. We just feel it. Mm-hmm. And Pema Chodron has a beautiful way of uh, saying that. She said, let it pierce you to your heart. And I say, let it pierce you to your bone. So just any armoring we'd have to not feel it, just really let it get in there and feel it and lean in, like you'd lean into the curve and the road, lean into the feeling. And whatever happens has to happen, shaking and crying and laying on the floor, you know, numb, it's okay. We just want to like let the emotion carry us along and be done with us. Mm-hmm. And it's like the fever, it is done with the virus. However, maybe that's not the best metaphor because it's not like a painful emotion is a toxin. It is when we can't properly work with it, but it's not a foreign object. It is a piece of you. And once you can like let it somatically be in your body, then you can dialogue with it as a friend, not a foe. So not as a toxin, but as, as some, like a messenger from the collective soul that has come through you, knocked on your body in the form of physical pain and said, I have something to tell you. You know, it's interesting. I do like the metaphor of the fever because I was talking to a nutritionist and she said the body likes to do work. And we keep putting mm-hmm. these, you know, we, we like, for instance, melatonin for sleep. Like what we want is the body to make melatonin from serotonin. And so the work of that is what is the most cleansing and builds the immune system and all of that. And so I think sometimes you know the universe the source as you call it divine source (laughs) gives us stuff to work on because that's how we grow so i i appreciate that metaphor for sure i want to talk about emotions and i know we've this is towards the end and it's a big topic to bring up but i think it's one we need to dig into a little bit emerging women does work with corporations and Mm. one of the things when we're in in a particularly more conventional culture, meaning like there's not a lot of development work going on, like they're just starting development work for their employees. And one of the things that comes up with the women in our programs, they want to know, you know, all right, you want me to be authentic, but then when I, you know, when I want to speak about something, I get so emotionally charged. The last thing I want to do is just completely like, give over to my emotions and especially a lot Mm. of these women are like you know they're in tech and they're like the only woman on their team they don't want to just like start crying you know as they're trying to share authentically and really own their story and step up and speak up and speak their truth in a meeting and it's not always like complaining or combative but just the idea of speaking up and speaking your truth can bring up so many emotions and that's their biggest fear and that holds us back from being authentic. So you have a section in your book, how not to die from your emotions. (laughs) And I so relate to this. Tell us how to navigate being authentic without dying, but, you know, really being expressive, fully expressed. Gosh, well, that's a beautiful example you told. Um, and in a way, we want to be in touch with the power of the emotion because it lets us know what we care about and what we love. Mm-hmm. But we, we also don't want to not get our words out because we're crying so hard, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, we're maybe not going to be heard as clearly if we're, we're crying. I think that this is one example. This is not the whole picture. 
But I think that we have some what I call presuppositions in our in our minds as women. And those are I shouldn't I, I shouldn't have this need. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to hear what I have to say anyway. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to rock the boat or cause waves. Mm-hmm. So we have this ground that we're speaking from mm-hmm. and that entirely affects how it comes out, what words we choose, the tone of our voice, where we're speaking from in our body, you know, and, and just how power, like what transmits. And so partly, I think, realizing that what you need or what you want is the answer to someone's prayer. Like literally, there is someone out there dreaming that you're going to you know, ask for that so that they can give it. <laughs> That's just how the collective soul works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it repositions our needs because we think if we need anything, we want anything that makes us needy, that makes us repulsive and repellent. And so we definitely stay away from that. We want to be able to do it all, all ourselves. So repositioning that as my needs are genius. They're part of the give and take of the universe. And they're a powerful part. They're not a a repulsive part of me. And I'm going to assume that people want to hear what I have to say. Mm -hmm. There is something asking to come through me, live as me, live through me. And I'm going to be in concert with that. I'm going to open up my mouth, stay in my body and share that thing. Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether I have evidence to that. And that assumption creates a different listening in the partner or the room or the audience. So I'm not saying that's the whole picture, but I'm saying that it helps a lot to presume what you want is important, to presume what you have to say is important, to presume that they absolutely want to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. Um, I think to say one more thing, we think we are going to die from our emotions because our brain thinks we're going to die from our emotions. This isn't a malformed part of us. You know, this is because our brains, usually our hind brain, the part that's responsible for survival, mm-hmm. codes physical pain and emotional pain the same way, right? You get a cut, same thing as, as uh, feeling abandoned. Mm-hmm. So we do think we're going to die from it. So this is where the, the human part of our brain mm-hmm. comes in and just says, actually, this feeling is not a harbinger of your death, nor is it uh, a stamp of your personal shortcoming, Mm because you're, you're crying in this meeting. Mm -hmm. This, this is an affirmation of your power. This is an affirmation of your love and your care. And then you can get a little bit more um, attuned as a as a voice box and as a vehicle for that voice to come out into the world mm-hmm. so i think there's a tremendous amount that can happen when we shift how we think about our voice and our feelings inside it mm-hmm. tremendously shifts how it's how it's received and how it sounds outside mm-hmm. yeah and we could probably spend another two hours on this i just yeah. want to <laughs> i want to wrap by saying you really covered it all and i love mm-hmm. your your focus on embodiment as a key part of the feminine and there is a whole section on the oracle and how we can tune into our feminine genius to guide us which is great but ending with this turning on and it's you know your your Mm -hmm. subtitle it's feminine genius the provocative path to waking up and turning on the wisdom of being a woman tell us about the turn on So I like to say that women are like a light bulb, right? We are strong, we are luminous, and especially when we're turned on. And we need to be plugged into source like you would plug in a light Mm -hmm. into into the socket of the wall to receive the electric energy that illuminates a light bulb. We need to be plugged into source, however that is that we feel connected, Mm -hmm. so that that we can really radiate that. So it's, it's a metaphor for being really connected to the radiance that is life itself, that is life force energy itself. However, so I mean it as a, dub, as a double entendre. I mean it like spiritual light, and I also mean it like 
an aspect of eroticism. Mm. And mm-hmm. and this is a this is the provocative part mm-hmm. for sure. I think it is human beings that need to re-understand that life force energy is synonymous with erotic energy, mm-hmm. actually. And that especially women do. Mm-hmm. Women's sexuality is probably the most controversial topic that there is. And so, you know, we just naturally either uh, ignore it or exploit it, you know, our sexuality mm-hmm. or something in between. And it's, it's essentially, you know, our, our sensual or sexual erotic energy really is life force itself. And we all have blocks to that or it makes us uncomfortable. And so then we are commensurately blocked or kinked up to our life force energy. So I think it just can open up a lot <laughs> to think of, you know, when you are excited and joy, full of joy uh, or full of love, you are turned on just as if, you know, when you're sexually aroused, it is, a, it's different, a, a different place on the spectrum. It's like a different range, but it's the same quality of energy. Mm-hmm. And it's that quality of energy that we need to yes. shift some stuff <laughs> in, in our world. Yeah. So beautiful. Oh, so beautiful. May we all feel that turning on. May we all live mm. from our feminine genius. The world will be a better place, no doubt. Mm, what fun to, to dive into this with you. And thank you for suggesting I write a book, Chantal. Oh, well, yeah. I knew that was coming. So. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for writing this beautiful piece. And um, I, you know, pretty much read it cover to cover, which is Ooh. rare because I've got, you know, a pile of books here, but, you know, because we're in the same genre here, I just really appreciated how you laid it out, and just your whole body of work just really, really resonates, so I wish you the best of luck with this, and I look forward to more. Mm, What an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, love. Take care. Mm, bye. Bye.